I'm from Oakland. I've been I've been homeless uh, about a year and a half. It's been pretty rough. It's, it was rough for me. They just trying to like put me anywhere, and you know I'm I'm halfway paralyzed, you know, and you can't. I don't think that's fair. You know, me me being in my position on the street is not not a good look or not a good thing. Cause I can die. It's 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 horrible. Living uh, on the streets is horrible. The city obviously would like to see us uh, not here, uh, but we're here and we haven't heard from the city in a while. So, uh, there's a camp to our south here that is a recent development here, which is causing us some problems because some folks are uh, using and drinking down there. So that causes us some problems. For me, I ran out of money <laughs> and I was unable to work. So I had a state job and I was a lifer. So um, I got really sick and I resigned, you know, leaving it open for me to someday return possibly. But I never did. I applied for disability. So I'm here living on disability. Uh, I just got a Section 8 voucher. Uh, it took eight years. That's how long I was on the housing list. I had been in there for eight years. There's something fishy going on in the system. I think everyone kind of sees it. You see a lot of displeasure both on the comments on next door, comments of Berkeley side. Anyone dealing with a municipality where their, um, their city council just isn't using their funding. Frankly, I just can't pay rental prices in the Bay Area. It's impossible to even find a studio for less than 1500 uh, And especially as a graduate student in the humanities, that was impossible for me. So I was going to graduate school. Um, I ended up having to drop out. I was dealing with some landlord issues. I had rats in my apartments, my roof leaked. Uh, there was mold in the wall. This was long standing. I've lived there for four years. If there's one thing that rang true in that in this community, the homeless community, the vast majority of us just come from broken families, which is why we create kind of a family here. We try to find family among our friends. I'd like to say that most of us have um, are rational and, and just like live differently, but are, are functioning people. But then again, you can walk downtown or walk through the Tenderloin, or and you see the the most extreme cases of you know uh, psychological frailty. A lot of us have been habituated in homelessness. Like I said, we come from disrupted adoptions, foster youth, um, or, or some type of circumstance where it's kind of been thrust upon us. I remember when I was 18, I was eating out of dumpsters. That was like, that. from 18 on, like, all I can remember is like sleeping under bridges, eating out of dumpsters, hitchhiking. Uh, and after a while, you just become habituated to that as kind of your normal lifestyle. 
Uh, it's and I think the problem also is that homelessness has been increasing over the years. More people are coming to California. There's a, a larger percentage of us, and so um, the cases that make people look at us negatively are more pronounced. You see that how people look at you like trash everywhere you go, uh, and I, I can't help but think that people internalize that negatively. And I try as much as I can to fight against it. You know, I have a beautiful dog. I talk to as many people as I can. I'm pretty approachable. I do yoga everywhere. And I try to like um, be an example of how homelessness is not necessarily a negativity, uh, but I'm like fighting against an ocean of suffering, really. <laughs> uh, I'm getting washed away pretty much. Thank you and welcome back. When we first started putting together that video, we thought it important that if we were gonna talk about the homeless, we should also let the homeless talk to us. And I think it illustrates clearly that behind all the numbers you hear, homelessness in California is a real human tragedy. We have an excellent panel coming up to discuss what to do about that tragedy, what are the solutions, and how can we all get involved and help? Uh, first up will be Adrian Covert, who is the Vice President for Public Policy with the Bay Area Council. As I got a list of all the areas that he's in charge of, and it was enormous, but chief among those is the homelessness work that the council does. I understand that they have some new uh, numbers that they're crunching now, and maybe we'll hear a little bit about that as well. Uh, next up will be Mayor Kevin Faulkner from San Diego, who is completing his second term as mayor there. And before that, he served his eight years on the city council, and he has made homelessness and housing an, an important issue in San Diego. He has, uh, has prioritized dealing with the city's homeless problem and its cost of housing, and we're anxious to hear more about that. And then finally, we have Elaine Howell, who is the state auditor, uh, has been in that position for 20 years, I understand, which is... Uh, a while, you were the first woman to ever hold that position, and uh, uh, I guess that makes you still are. Uh, <laughs> someone else has been in there. Uh, but it's an independent position and uh, reports uh, on state actions, and we understand there's a couple of reports you're gonna be talking about. So with that, I'm gonna let you folks talk a little bit about the problem. We have a growing epidemic of homelessness in California. And we'll start with you, Adrian, you're up first. Great, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for having us. Thank you to my fellow panelists uh, for joining for this really important conversation. So first, I just wanna quickly mention that the Bay Area Council is a 75-year-old business group and homelessness has not traditionally been part of the council's policy program. But that changed around 2017 after our annual poll of members, uh, business leaders in the Bay Area region revealed that homelessness had risen to the top three policy concerns for the large employers in the Bay Area, right around housing and transportation. So we released a study last year on home, regional homelessness in the Bay Area, and we're following that study up with uh, some new research. I just wanna mention the best data that we have on this to go by is data from 2019's pit counts. Obviously the world has changed a lot in the last uh, few months. So I fully anticipate the next pig count, uh, which begins early next year, to have some uh, unique surprises. But that said, the 2019 numbers are still the best that we have. So that's what I'm gonna be talking about today. 
Uh, and so without further delay, let me do a screen share here and we'll get cracking. Okay, do folks see the graph? It's not showing right now. It's not showing. Okay, hold on. I knew you know, things like this happen. Let me try this one. Let me try this. There we go. Okay, do you see a graph or do you see presenter notes? Uh, we see presenter notes. Okay, that's not good either. There we go. Now we see a graph. Now you see a graph, but I uh, graph or notes? Notes. Okay, let me try one more thing. Sorry, everyone. Appreciate the patience. Hold up. Um, this should work. There's a graph. So you should, you see a graph and I'm gonna to try to get the graph to be there shared and not the notes. Okay, there. cool. Sorry for that. Solve the Zoom okay. riddle. Yeah. yeah. We'll figure this out by the time this is all over. Okay, so first let's start with some, some context about about what's been happening in the United States over the last decade. The United States has just come off of a record decade of record job and economic growth. Increased prosperity should be reducing homelessness. And that's basically what we see across the United States. Homelessness is down 11% across the board over the last decade. It's down in 42 of 50 states. It's up in only eight states, including California, where it's up 22%. I will mention these eight states include several other large states like New York and Massachusetts. So these eight account for about a quarter of the US population. We wanted to take a deeper dive into what was happening in all of the states to try to tease out the areas where California really is different. And so maybe we can uh, uh, zero in on the areas where California is unique and find a little bit more about ourselves. So this, chart shows the estimated total homeless population of each state by the sheltered populations in gray and unsheltered in green. Most people know that there are more homeless in Californians than any other state. All that really tells us is that California is the largest state in the union. And that if you look at that giant green bar, it looks like California has far more unsheltered um, homeless people relative to its overall homeless population than any other state. We'll get into that. But first, I wanna take a deeper dive into the data, particularly to control for population. And here's where I think things get interesting. This chart compares states by the number of homeless residents per 10,000 residents overall. Homelessness is most common per capita in New York, followed by Hawaii. California is basically tied for third with Oregon. And I think to me, this graph begs two questions. One, why is unsheltered homelessness such a Western problem? See these big green parts of the bar in the far right? That's Washington, Oregon, California, and Hawaii. Unsheltered homelessness seems to be a unique phenomenon out West. And then the second question is, 
why is homelessness higher in some states than in others, particularly Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington, California, Hawaii, New York? These are the, the top five or six, top six states in per capita homelessness rates. So let's tackle the first, the last one first. Why is homelessness higher in some states than in others? And I want to pause here to issue a disclaimer that the causes of homelessness are extremely complex. And I'm not here to say that there's one single answer to this question. However, these next numbers I think are striking and they're a big part of the equation. And that is median rents. So these are the median rents for all states in the United States in 2019. And the states with the highest rates of homelessness are also the states with the highest levels of median rents. In fact, per capita, uh, homelessness per capita is 204% higher in the 25 higher rent states than it is in the 25 lower rent states. This is extremely problematic for Californians, uh, for California households that are qualified as extremely low income. These households earn less than 33% of area median income, but California's high rents means 77% of these households spend more than half of their income on housing. These households are one very minor uh, fiscal emergency from life on the streets. So now let's get back to the shelter issue. So we looked at states and the states per capita. Let, we wanted to take a look at the regions. The Bay Area Council is a regionalist organization at heart. So we can get more better, uh, better apples to apples comparisons looking at regions. So this chart shows the per capita homeless populations, sheltered and unsheltered, in 21 of the largest regions in the United States. Um, they, these regions account for about a quarter of the total US population and about half of the total US homeless population. The first thing I want you to notice is that New York, DC, and Boston all have way more homeless people per capita than California regions. In some cases, twice as many. Uh, the next thing I want you to notice is, are the West Coast metros. They're highlighted here. They account for 37% of the population of all the regions uh, shown here, but 47% of the population, so slightly overrepresented in their homeless populations, but 82% of unsheltered homeless populations are in these, uh, these Western metro areas. So yes, large scale unsheltered homelessness really does appear to be a uniquely West Coast phenomenon. So do West Coast states just not provide shelter beds to the homeless at rates similar to other states? And the answer is no, we just don't. We, we don't provide shelter. This slide breaks down the total number of temporary shelter beds available for every homeless person in each state. California is dead last. We provide less than one shelter bed for every three homeless people. The US average is nearly one to one. To get to the US average, California would need 100,000 temporary shelter beds to give you a perspective of where our gap is. So how do the regions, these, these are the states, how do the regions stack up on this metric? Well, here they are again. California metro areas, rock bottom. Even the best performing San Diego County uh, in California provides less than one bed for every two homeless people. And when you compare this to New York, Boston, and DC, they down at the bottom of this graph, they're basically one-to-one. -one. 
They provide a bed to everyone. And this, I remember, is despite having, in some cases, twice as many homeless people per capita than California has. So you can't say California doesn't provide beds because we have too many homeless people. We also have a bigger tax base. Compared to these other regions, we should be able to do it. So why don't we do it? And I know this is this can be controversial, but you know, let's take a look at the weather because this has some, might have something to do with it. Here are those same urban regions. The farther to the right on this graph, the more shelter beds are offered per homeless individual, with the far right being a bed for everyone, far left being a bed for no one. And the higher up in the chart, the warmer the city's winter is. The lower, the colder it is. And that red line represents the freezing temperatures. And the trend is pretty clear. The warmer the region, the less shelter it feels obligated to provide its homeless. And remember, again, New York, Boston, and DC have more homeless per capita than California regions. In short, my takeaway from this is that warm weather doesn't cause homelessness. It causes voters and elected officials to ignore homelessness, resulting in more people on the streets. And I get it. Well, you might say, we have California sunshine. Homelessness isn't going to kill you here, to which I say wrong. It might not kill you overnight like in a blizzard, but it will eventually get to you. Unsheltered homelessness is devastating for public health. Nearly 6,000 people, homeless people, have died on the streets of just three California counties in the last five years. This graph shows Los Angeles, Santa Clara, and San Francisco counties where I was able to find the most apples to apples comparisons. Um, the average, uh, and by the way, this represents a 75% increase in the death rate, uh, way faster than the growth in the homeless population over that same time period. The average death, uh, age at death for homeless is 51 years. That's 37% lower than the general population. If that was a disease, this would be considered a, a global emergency. Um, and also unsheltered homelessness results in early onset of all kinds of known comor comorbidities for COVID-19, like hypertension, diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, and cardiac disease, which is why in New York City, they were able to, they found that the homeless residents who came down with COVID-19 had a 61% higher mortality rate than the general population. So unsheltered homelessness is a public health emergency. So again, to recap so far, where we're at is that we're California is 48th in homeless per capita. We are 50th dead last in providing shelter beds. The weather is no solution. And, but what about permanent supportive housing? So we're not building shelters. So we gotta be ahead of the game with permanent supportive housing, right? Oftentimes you hear that if you're investing in shelters, you're not investing in permanent supportive housing as though there's some sort of give and take and one comes out of the other. Well, let's look at that. This is the, uh, the amount of permanent supportive housing provided per capita by all the states in the US. California ranks eighth in providing permanent supportive housing. Not too bad. These are people in permanent supportive housing who were once homeless. They're often struggling with severe uh, illnesses and now they're permanently housed with dignity. This is the gold standard. However, if you've seen the conditions on the street, clearly this is not enough and we seem to have hit a roadblock. This chart shows the per capita growth of permanent supportive housing in California versus its closest peer states. 
And for peer states, I chose the West Coast states of Hawaii, Oregon, and Washington, who have similar per capita homeless rates as California, and also other high cost East Coast states like New York and Massachusetts. And the takeaway here is down at the bottom, you see California provides less permanent supportive housing than our peer states. Um, and we're growing our permanent supportive housing stock, although at an impressive clip over the last decade, we've increased the stock by 115%. It's still lower than these other states. And I think what's notable here, especially, is that it's lower than Massachusetts. And Massachusetts is a state that shelters everybody. They've been able to have a shelter mandate that shelters practically everyone while growing their permanent supportive housing stock at a faster clip than California. And so you ask why, and I say, maybe this has something to do with it. The fact that it's impossibly expensive to build anything in California. The LA Times did an estimate, uh, re a report recently that estimated the average cost to build an affordable home in California in 2019 was about a half a million dollars. In some areas, it was over three, it was three quarters of a million dollars, like the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And, and the cost of building an affordable housing unit is a pretty good proxy for the cost of building a permanent supportive housing unit. And you just can't scale with this. So let's close with some math. The housing first um, uh, principle, we've got 151,000 homeless people. If we're gonna multiply that by about $500,000 a unit for a new unit of permanent supportive housing, that's 57 billion across the board. And again, this is a simple, mathematic equation. Um, a lot of units are, we would never be building 151,000 brand new units you can acquire at rehab. So there's some give and take here. The price could be a little bit lower, but that's the order of magnitude we're looking at. Now, another option is in the news recently is the project home key that the Newsom administration has been talking about. Um, they've been acquiring and rehabbing hotels and motels into transitional housing for the homeless at about 130,000 a door. And I wanna give big kudos for that program because that is significantly less than what those conversions projects typically cost in the past, significantly less. So this is a big success that they're working on, but again, scaling it to the number of homeless people California has, pretty tough. Um, certainly not without major federal investment. And then finally, to throw it out there on the other end of the spectrum, we have been able to show um, in Oakland and other places, Seattle does this too, where cabin communities have been effectively shown to bring entire homeless communities uh, indoors and provided with safe and professional services. And they can be done at about $35,000 a pop, which to handle the remaining unsheltered homeless population in California, would be about $3.7 billion CapEx. We're gonna need funding for all of these options for ongoing services. So that doesn't include that here, but this gives you a sense of what the options are and how can we be honest with these, with each other about what it's gonna take to really make a big dent in the problem. And then just to finally, I believe where we need to go is we need to increase California's housing supply to reduce rents and stop the pressure of pushing people out into the street in the first place. We should treat unsheltered homelessness as a public health emergency and expand safe shelters. We should not be tolerating people on the streets and we should be expanding permanent supportive housing. You were using 
lower cost options. We can't do this if we're paying $500,000 a door. So modular accessory dwelling units, and yeah, those hotel conversions are coming in a lot lower than before. So with that, uh, thank you. Um, and I'm looking forward to the conversation hearing from the other panelists. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. That gives us some place to start. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, terrific. Uh, can you hear me okay, Michael? Loud and clear. Uh, terrific. Uh, thank you. And Adrian, thank you for your uh, presentation and uh, all of the uh, information on the charts and graphs. Uh, but, but thank you for allowing me to uh, be a part of this morning's uh, session. And I will tell you, for the, those of you that may have heard me talk on this topic before, uh, you've heard me say that homelessness is not merely an issue in California, it is the issue. Uh, and I'm a strong believer that we need to redo our homeless system because it's broken in our state. Um, and I think, you know, we've got a lot of studies that have been done on it, but, but you don't need to see a study uh, when you see tent encampments, unconscious folks on the sidewalk, open drug use, overwhelmed emergency rooms, uh, and so much more. And I'm, that's why I'm so happy to come to today's forum because it's really you know, time to be honest about why more and more people are living on the street, uh, but I think most importantly, solutions to fix it. Um, San Diego County was one of the only places in the state where homelessness has decreased two years in a row. Uh, went down by 6% in 2019 and 5% uh, in 2020. Yet, we still have over 2,000 folks uh, on our streets in the city. So while we've made some good progress, um, it's incredibly important that we double down on those efforts. Um, so I'm looking forward to just in about the 10 to 12 minutes I have to share my thoughts and, and insights on what we've been doing here in the eighth largest city in the country uh, to address it head on. Um, and I would say that you know, when it comes to conventional wisdom about theories on how to solve homelessness have proven to be largely ineffective for the scope and the scale of our crisis here in California. Adrian, I think, just got to that very effectively. Um, you know, I've seen it firsthand as mayor. I remember back to when San Diego was going through a hepatitis A crisis on our streets <laughs> over four years ago. That was a system that showed we needed to do things differently. Uh, lives were at stake. Um, we used to try to pursue universal consensus on where to put homeless services and where to build housing, all while homelessness continued to rise. Um, some would say that they support more homeless services. They just want them somewhere else. Uh, and so as I made that commitment to San Diegans, I said, those days are over. Uh, we've since taken dramatic steps, not about universal consensus, it's about action and results to get people into safe and sanitary environments. Um, so I'll touch on a couple of these examples from the past few years, and then a little bit about how COVID-19 uh, has made some changes to our system that I think have been actually very positive as we look at to, to the future of, of how we're getting people off the streets uh, for good. There's a lot of focus uh, always, unfortunately, on the only focus is housing, is only housing to solve homelessness. Um, and housing is incredibly uh, important. The reality is, and we just heard this a little bit, is it can take years to build one home, let alone the 151,000 for every homeless individual on the streets in California. The housing only ideology, if you will, I strongly believe, ignores that tens of thousands of Californians 
aren't homeless just because they lost their home. They're homeless because they're also losing their fight with mental illness or addiction. And so until we get the statewide housing reforms uh, that we desperately need, and then I continue to support, we really have to work on solutions that are helping people right now. Uh, in a matter of months, uh, the city of San Diego identified locations. We constructed and opened three massive strung, sprung structures uh, to get folks off the streets immediately. We increased our shelter capacity by more than 800 beds for men, women, and children. We also opened up two storage centers to help people to get their freedom and their dignity back uh, and keep them from having to be preyed on by thieves and criminals out on the streets. Um, I will tell you that as I think all of us know that our clients will run the gamut. We will have homeless college students that are need help in storing maybe perhaps some of their belongings. We'll have employees who want to keep their work uniforms in our storage units. And we will have men and women who need to drop off their things before they go to a doctor's appointment. Um, people who would otherwise struggle to find a job, go to school or open access services without the stigma, of course, of being homeless. And so just as importantly, I think this really helps us to not only help people and individuals and belongings, but it helps keep our public spaces uh, free of tents and debris. Um, I think we also recognized in San Diego that you have to intervene before people end up on the streets with those individuals who unfortunately their vehicle right now is a home of last resort. That's why we also established uh, over the last two years, three safe parking lots for people that are unfortunately living out of their cars or RVs who are looking to try to get into that place of their own but haven't been able to make it work just quite yet. Um, those safe parking lots are working. Uh, they're working every single night. It's not just about a lot, it's about the wraparound services with the help and the support to get folks matched with that apartment of their own or to give them that safe access to some of the services um, that we need. Um, we have to get creative. We have to find faster ways to put a roof over somebody's head. And so I've worked very closely with our uh, apartment owners, rent uh, units, others with our homeless individuals, but also working that how can we reunite folks with their family? Um, everybody who's on the street has some family. And so we've really put a lot of effort here into San Diego to our family reunification program. And since 2012, that has helped more than 3,000 individuals reunite with their families um, to get them back on their feet, to get them back on their feet uh, for good. Um, and so I've really tried to create the system uh, where we have a shelter for folks to go. It's a clean and sanitary environment, that it has the wraparound services to help them with what they may be dealing with in terms of addiction or mental health, has the having, housing navigators um, so they, we can match them with a resource right there in the shelter, again, with one goal. How do we get people off the streets, but not just for a week or for a month, but how do we get them off the streets for good and into that place of their own? And whether you're individuals, whether you're families, whether you're veterans, matching all of those help uh, and all of those resources um, together. Lockstep and part of that is really sending a very strong message that if we have these shelters, you have to use them and not allowing folks on tent encampments on the sidewalks of San Diego or in our canyons or in our river valleys. Um, and really insisting that folks use those shelters because as back to what I've said before, if you're suffering from mental illness or substance abuse, being out on the street is no solution. If you allow somebody to live on the street, you're gonna condemn them to die on the street. 
I firmly believe that. And that's why we've had such an effort to get folks off the streets um, and into our, into our shelters. As part of that effort has been a focused effort in terms of our neighborhood policing division within the city of San Diego to respond in every single neighborhood. And every time we're out there and making encounters and making contacts, it's one goal. How can I get you into the shelter tonight? That's been a, a mind uh, shift, mindset change in San Diego and an approach, as I said, that we always want to help and get that offer for bed. And so that is incredibly uh, important um, because we also have to insist, whether you're mayor or you know, on the West Coast or East Coast, that you do not allow illegal and criminal activity, particularly when it comes to some of the drug use that's happening. Uh, and that is so, so much unfortunate of what we're seeing uh, some of our population. That's why it's important to get those helps and to get those, those services uh, in support. And so it's all about, we've tried to take very swift action uh, in the city of San Diego. It's about creating a clean, safe, and sanitary uh, environment, particularly as we're all uh, dealing with COVID-19. Uh, we have taken some very swift action uh, to prevent the spread in our homeless population. Uh, we started with placing hand washing stations and promoting good hygiene throughout the city. We've deployed nurses with outreach teams to distribute care packages and information, of course, on COVID-19. Uh, and I think the biggest game change that we did in San Diego is we established an emergency shelter and we called it Operation Shelter to Home at our San Diego Convention Center. Um, and it's really been a game changer. Uh, and we opened up our convention center because we're not having conventions, unfortunately, right now with COVID-19 but allowed us to have that space for more physical distancing, more efficient staffing. So we took all of the folks that were in our bridge shelters that we stood up, brought them all to the convention center. It's more capacity. And now we're serving over 1,200 people each night, again, in a clean sanitary environment, doing COVID uh, testing for every single homeless individual. Um, and it's working. Uh, we've only had 20 positives out of more than 7,700 tests that we've conducted since April, it's all been asymptomatic because anybody with symptoms is uh, put into one of our, our hotel units. Um, and the main objectives when we stood up this shelter was really how can we find the barriers that are preventing people from getting housed? And so we have our housing teams inside the convention center every single day, broken down those barriers, streamlined processes and worked with our external partners and our providers with matching individuals with vouchers, with subsidies and programs, really to change how we house people. And I've said, this is gonna be an all hands on deck effort as we have not had some uh, city operations open. For example, some of our libraries and rec centers, we've moved some of these employees into the convention center to help with housing navigation. Uh, we have housed over 600 people in six months. And this was double the rate of housing efforts uh, before we moved everybody into the convention center. So back to what I said, maybe there's some silver linings in terms of COVID-19, uh, is to make sure that we were being as efficient as we could, we're using all the resources as we could, and we were really putting that spirit uh, and that momentum um, to get folks going. Uh, we have been very active and aggressive in terms of purchasing hotels. And I was really glad that Adrian uh, mentioned about that because that is a program uh, that is working. Um, we just identified actually in the last several weeks, uh, two new virtually move-in ready properties uh, that the city of San Diego is gonna be purchasing. They'll house an additional 400 folks 
from our Operation Shelter to Home and our convention center. Uh, and our goal is to have them open and hopefully available before Christmas. Um, so we've really made a lot of significant progress through this new Operation Shelter to Home, and I'm doing a lot of speaking about it because I think it's really going to be a model for the future, certainly of our homeless system here in San Diego, um, while at the same time being able to help prevent the spread of the virus from taking hold in this incredibly vulnerable population, which are women and men on the streets. And so I would just say in, in the, the sum it up, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing our, our state auditor, who, by the way, our uh, auditor did a remarkable audit in terms of homeless, uh, I should say mental health issues in California. Again, they're, they're absolutely linked. Um, I think we need smarter strategies to help folks uh, in the populations from sleeping outdoors, uh, people who need housing and people who need mental illness and substance abuse issues. You have to link all of those together. So we've really changed our approach pretty dramatically in San Diego over the last uh, four years. I think we're seeing some of those results as homelessness has decreased, continues to decrease. We've got a lot of work um, still to do, um, but I think you, you, have to, you have to address it by getting real, as I said, about the problems particularly head on on mental health and substance abuse. It is not acceptable to condone living outdoors in our cities. It's not humane to let people with severe mental illness to wander our streets, uh, and it's not responsible to turn a blind eye to drug abuse. It's going on. And so I think we have the ability within ourselves to continue to make a change in all of our urban cities in, in California, uh, to continue to move folks off the street, to clean up the unsafe homeless encampments that unfortunately has symbolized too much failure in the past. Um, and as I said before, it is not compassionate to let somebody live on the street because you will condemn them to die on the street. So I wanna thank the Cato Institute for uh, helping me to invite me to, to come today to share a few things about this discussion. That's a little bit about the approach that we're taking in San Diego. I'm happy to answer some questions after we hear uh, from our auditor. Um, but I will say that the good news is that I think we have a lot of momentum, uh, momentum for all of the right reasons, which is to help somebody get off the street get back on their feet uh, into that place of their own for good. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. I appreciate you taking some time on a busy day. Uh, with that, we're going to go to Ms. Howell and uh, take it away. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mr. Mayor, for the introduction. And I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for inviting me to participate in this panel. Um, one thing I did want to mention is we, we actually conducted an audit uh, back in 2018 uh, with respect to homelessness in California, and a lot of the results of that audit uh, are very similar to what Adrian was talking about in his presentation. California has a huge percentage of the homeless population in the country. Um, a, a huge number of individuals in California are unsheltered. One of the things that we did discuss in our audit report back in 18 is the number of youth uh, unaccompanied youth who are youth under the age of 25, not accompanied by a guardian or a parent. And the percentages were significant. I need to look at my notes here, but for youth in California who are homeless, 82% of those youth uh, were unsheltered and unaccompanied youth. They did not have a parent or guardian uh, assisting them. So a lot of young people out on the streets, unfortunately. 
Um, that audit had a lot of the same conclusions that Adrian, so I'm not going to go into that in a lot of detail. Uh, one of the things that we were uh, disappointed to find out during the course of that audit was that there actually was a homelessness coordinating council that had been created in 2016. But what we found out when we, when we uh, dug a little bit deeper is we determined how was that funded? Who were the members of that particular council? And it was volunteer members from various state agencies uh, and there was no funding provided. So that council really didn't do much at all. Uh, so that's something that the legislature really took seriously. And I certainly believe the Newsom administration is taking seriously to try to get some statewide coordination with respect to the homelessness issue in California. But as the mayor indicated, a huge component of uh, dealing with homelessness in California is dealing with those individuals who suffer from serious mental illness and what kind of services are we providing to those individuals. And, and we conducted an audit, issued it in July of this year at the direction of the legislature. What they wanted us to, to figure out for them or answer for them is what kinds of services is California providing uh, to individuals who have serious mental illness who are subject to what's called the Lannerman Petrus Short Act, where they are subject because of the seriousness of their illness to a hold, an involuntary hold. In some cases, that hold is only a 72 hour hold, three days. Uh, it's determined by a medical professional. Some cases, an individual is deemed they need to be held for 14 days. Some individuals end up in conservatorship, uh, which can last up to a year. So what the legislature was concerned about is, do we have people on the street who are suffering from serious mental illness are, are entering these holds, but then when they get released from either a 72 hour hold or, or a 14 day hold, what services are being provided in the communities uh, to assist these, these individuals to stabilize their mental health and the, um, get them uh, opportunities to other, for other services to stabilize their overall health, not just their mental health, but their physical being, their ability to have stable mental health, which will lead to hopefully unemployment, housing, et cetera. They can be productive uh, members of the, the, the community in California. So what the legislature asked us to do was to look at some counties and assess their, their process for uh, exercising the holds. But most importantly, what's happening after that individual is, is held and stabilized and then released? And are there people who, as the members requested and were concerned about cycling through 72 hour holds? They're on a hold, they're released, and then a month later, they're back on another 72 hour hold. They're cycling through the system. There's no stability for those individuals. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we found. Uh, we looked at a few uh, counties and we found that um, individuals were cycling through uh, the 72 hour hold multiple, multiple times. We found in, in Los Angeles County, 166,000 individuals over the course of a, a certain time frame, 10 years or so, that had cycled through these 72 hour holds multiple times. So these individuals are really suffering from severe mental illness and unfortunately are not receiving the services they need to become stable and, and ultimately uh, you know, be able to stay out in the community and get gainful employment, get housing, uh, be able to provide for themselves. 
So we, we found that in multiple uh, counties in California, we looked at three counties. We wanted to look at a small county, Shasta County, Los Angeles County, and San Francisco County. And it was consistent across the board. And part of the problem is these individuals were not getting linked, as the mayor said, to services that are available in the counties. Uh, because when an individual is placed on a 72-hour hold, that information is reported up to the, the State Department of Healthcare Services. But what the State Department of Healthcare Services does not have the authority to do and doesn't do is communicate with the counties that this individual is on a 72-hour hold, they're being released, we need to be able to connect them to services in the county so that they can get that continued care uh, and hopefully continue to stabilize their mental health and allow them again to get gainful employment, seek housing, be able to stabilize uh, that individual so that they are uh, a productive member of society. So we, we saw that the state does not communicate with the counties to be able to ensure those counties understand who in our community is suffering from mental, he mental health, health issues, uh, has been so seriously uh, mentally ill that they were placed on a hold where they are deemed a danger to themselves, others, they just cannot provide for their own health. So that was a major issue that we saw uh, in California. The other issue is if someone is placed on a conservatorship um, and then they're released from that conservatorship, they are not eligible for certain services. So we, we looked at assisted outpatient uh, treatment, which is a voluntary thing that counties can do. There are 12 counties in California that provide this assisted outpatient services. So this is, as the mayor indicated, kind of wraparound service, services that are gonna help this individual from a holistic perspective. Certainly their, their mental health, uh, psychiatric services, uh, medications, those sorts of things, but wraparound services so that person, again, can continue to maintain stable mental health and move towards you know, being more productive in society and be able to stay um, out of facilities, stay out of crisis. Um, but we saw only 12 counties. Uh, it's a voluntary uh, program. Uh, the counties that do use it seem uh, to indicate it's quite successful. San Francisco has a program that's similar to assisted outpatient, and they said it has saved them thousands of dollars, $10,000 a month uh, per individual that's been in that program because those individuals are not cycling through emergency rooms or psychiatric facilities on those 72-hour holds or those 14-day holds. So there are things that the state can do, counties can do, as far as embracing the assisted outpatient uh, programs and allowing counties to adopt that particular program because that has proven to be very beneficial uh, to these individuals. The other issue is you have some individuals who are so seriously mentally, mentally ill, they need to be in a state facility. So we looked at the Department of State Hospitals and how many individuals are on a waiting list to be able to get into a facility like that and get the appropriate treatment. And what we found is a real disparity between those who are going through the criminal justice system and those who are com un involuntarily committed and into a conservatorship uh, or a, a 14, at least a 14 day hold, but determine that they need to be held longer, to need to be treated in a state facility. So the disparity there is if you're, if you're deemed incompetent to stand trial, you have to be committed to that mental health facility, that state hospital within 60 days. They have to find a treatment bed for you. Um, if you're, treat, if you're uh, under the Lannerman uh, Petrus Act, 
you could wait up to a year. We saw individuals waiting more than a year to be able to be uh, placed into one of those beds to get the proper treatment that they needed. So there's really a problem there. So what we recommended to the Department of State Hospitals, you need to determine what kind of resources you need to be able to expand your capacity for bed space to provide services to these individuals who are seriously mentally ill. So that was another issue that we identified in the report recommendations that we made. So the big question I'm sure everyone has on their minds is, well, how do we pay for this? So the other thing that we have done in, in California for the legislature is everyone's familiar with the Mental Health Services Act, Prop 63, the tax on millionaires. Um, that act has, has generated billions of dollars in California. And a lot of counties have been able to use those funds for two major programs that are significant, preventative and early intervention services and community support. And these are those types of services to provide to individuals who suffer from mental illness to, to hopefully help them remain stable, keep them on their medications, give them the types of psychiatric services that they need to maintain stability so they aren't cycling through 72-hour holds or 14-day holds or even, unfortunately, if they are, end up uh, in a conservatorship. So what we found is there is a significant amount of money that's been generated, uh, but two audits that we've done on Mental Health Services Act, there's a lot of funding that has not been spent. Uh, it's, it's in the reserve accounts at the various counties. Um, and part of the reason the counties haven't been able to spend it is the Lanterman Petrus Act uh, or the Mental Health Services uh, Act doesn't allow uh, some of these funds to be used for individuals conserved under the LPS Act. Uh, so what we recommended to the legislature, you've got to modify state law, you've got to change state law so counties can access some of this uh, money and be able to use it for those community services and certainly preventative services. So let's free up some of those dollars that are available at the county level for counties to be able to uh, use those funds and link these individuals to services that are going to help them. And all of this stabilizing people's mental health is going to hopefully for those many, many people who are out in the streets, as the mayor said, suffering from mental illness and substance abuse issues uh, let's get them those mental health services because that's going to help stabilize them and help them, you know, again, be more productive in society, be able to get a job, get housing, those sorts of things. So they're not in the system, the mental health system forever. They're getting the services they need to be stabilized. So we made some recommendations to the legislature there. There are hundreds of millions of dollars available in those mental health services accounts. Those two, the uh, preventative services, and then community support uh, services accounts uh, are about 95% of the dollars that are allocated through the Mental Health Services Act. And just looking at a few counties, we saw millions of dollars available, um, but we've got to change state law. So we made that recommendation to the legislature. As I said, this report was issued in July of this year because of COVID. I, there hasn't been a lot of movement as far as uh, legislation. But again, the members are very interested in this. In fact, we are in the process of conducting another audit on homelessness, uh, looking at continuum of care, uh, what communities uh, out in the counties are doing. Uh, we're gonna be releasing that report in February of 2021. Uh, but we certainly think that uh, as the mayor indicated, uh, 
looking at mental health services and doing everything we can at the state level and helping the locals, the counties, uh, do what they can to provide services to individuals in our communities is going to help solve the, the homelessness crisis, but certainly the mental health crisis in California as well. So with that, I think I'll turn it back to uh, Mr. Tanner, the moderator, so we can uh, launch into some questions. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And good to get uh, an idea of what is working and also what some of the challenges that remain still are. Mr. Mayor, I understand you have got a hard stop. You're going to have to run out on city business shortly. Uh, so let me ask you a couple of questions yeah. that came directly to you. And also to mention, uh, not only do I appreciate you being here today, but we had a great meeting uh, late last year uh, in San Diego. You took the time to talk to me and argue with me where some of the areas where we disagreed. It's so a good I, conversation, Michael, yes. It was, it was very helpful. Uh, in that regard, uh, it's a tough balance if you've been trying to do it between uh, quality of life issues and obviously nobody wants someone defecating in front of their store and things like that, you have to deal with those, but also dealing with civil liberties and, and the problem of house, housing and what have you. Uh, one of the things you've done is to sort of link the two that people get housing, you have a housing alternative if you're going to take them off the street, someplace that they can go. A lot of communities don't have that and it simply becomes the throwing them in jail for the weekend or moving them from one place to another or without dealing with the problem. Do you think that that linkage is vitally important uh, in, in being able to do this that have to have some alternative to simply saying get off the street? And second part of that is, uh, which uh, you mentioned to me, and I don't think you mentioned in your talk here, was what happens to people's possessions and ID and stuff like that? You go close down a homeless camp and tear up their tent. Do they lose everything, which they do in some communities like San Francisco? Yeah, uh, the, the answer is no to the second part. I'll, I'll address that head on. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons why uh, I established uh, storage sites free of charge, um, obviously it, it not inexpensive, but really to give people that opportunity uh, for their belongings, uh, as I said, to come in, to be able to check them in and, and check them out. Um, if we come across belongings that have been discarded or others, we do not throw them away. Uh, we take them and folks can come claim them. And I think that's been incredibly important. Again, I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, it's the, the dignity, to help folks with their dignity as well in terms of belongings. Um, and I think that gets back to the first part of your, your question, Michael. Not only is it important to have a shelter for folks to go to, I think it's the morally right thing to do. Um, you know, I was glad that uh, in some of Adrian's slides, he talked about that uh, disparity uh, in terms of shelter beds that were available. And I can tell you when I made some of the decisions that I said, we are going to dramatically increase our shelter beds. That's why we went to the, the sprung structures uh, because we have to be compassionate and you have to have a bed for somebody to go into uh, to get that help and that support. And I think people understand that. I think it's, there's a lot of logic to it. Um, as I said before, it's, it's, just the, it's just the right thing to do. And what I said in San Diego, because you're always going to have back and forth of, you know, where, where are you going to locate homeless services? As I said earlier, you'll see a lot of support for folks to say, we need more homeless services. But sometimes and oftentimes they'll say, I just don't want it here or I don't want it here. I made the decisions on where to put our bridge shelters. I made the decisions on where to put our storage centers. And I said, if it's not working, you know who to blame. You can blame me as mayor. But I also made that commitment with our community and neighborhoods surrounding those centers that these areas were gonna be cleaner than they've ever been. They're gonna be safer. They're going to work. 
uh, and we're going to make a huge difference. And I think as we look upon that, that has been a key part of our success in San Diego to have neighborhood acceptance uh, because people have seen a difference. They've seen a difference in terms of folks not being on the street in encampments and tents. They've seen a difference in what we're able to do, as I said, to increase our actual ability to put people into that permanent supportive housing uh, on their own. Um, if we weren't able to, to demonstrate that, Michael, we wouldn't have public support for the things that we're doing. And that's why, as I said, it's, it's so incredibly, I think, important from a leadership standpoint to very clearly communicate where we're going, how we're going to do it, and then to have that feedback in terms of the results on, in, in getting people on help and support. As I said, we still have a lot of work to do here in San Diego, but because we're seeing that you know, down by 12% over the last two years, uh, we have a lot of momentum. My job is to help keep up that momentum. Uh, and I think, as I said, to with the things that we're putting online with Project HomeKey, uh, new hotels that we're converting, uh, it's working. But you have to constantly be able to go out and communicate and to demonstrate that you're actually having real results. Well, that's terrific. Yeah, leadership is going to have to be a part of any uh, solutions uh, that's, that's become clear as we've talked to folks around the state. Uh, one last question before you have to run, and that is one of the things that repeatedly come up here as questions is the role of the faith-based community and nonprofits in dealing with homeless. Yeah. And someone, I presume they're from San Diego, but they asked about an organization called Solutions for Change and uh, in San Diego, whether you knew that you had worked with them at all and whether or not you knew anything about them. I do. Uh, doing, doing great work up in particularly the north part of, uh, of San Diego County. And let me just agree with the, the premise of the, of the question or the statement. Our faith-based organizations play a remarkable role, as do our community uh, groups and support. And, and in fact, have three of our strongest community providers that have been really uh, running and operating our bridge shelters in San Diego. It's a group called the Alpha Project. We also had uh, a Father Joe's Village at St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, then we also had a veterans shelter run by VVSD uh, here in San Diego. So it takes everybody. That is a true definition of public-private uh, partnership for us to help support uh, groups that are doing great things, uh, to bring in you know new ideas uh, and you know places for folks to to help out, and really that shelter network, you have to have a functioning shelter network that is open, that is an inviting uh, place for folks to go, and know that they're going to get the help and the support and be safe there. We've been able to establish that since we've started that. Uh, we're going to be opening up uh, new locations as well here coming up in the coming months. Uh, once people know that that option is available, that there is a safe place, guess what? People use it. Uh, and so that is, again, you can't, from, from a political standpoint, as I talk to other mayors across, whether it's California or whether it's other parts of the, other parts of the country, you know, don't, don't let fear guide you. Uh, let the action guide you and being able to demonstrate positive results, because when you have those results, you're going to get community acceptance for additional support, additional services, whereas before you wouldn't have had that. And so that's the constant battle that all of us have to do on the local level. But again, with one goal, are we actually moving the needle, getting folks off the street, uh, getting them the help, and then getting back into that place of their own for good. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I'll let you get off to the other things you have to take oh, care of. And I'll, my, uh, my pleasure, Michael. Thank you again to, to you and everybody at the Cato Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Let me uh, let me turn to Adrian and Elaine and just ask a, a quick question here. But but a basic one: Who are the homeless? I mean, we sort of think of them as a monolith. Uh, one of the things I get all the time is all while well, all the homeless are drug addicts and uh, and mentally ill people. Uh, you know what? They they come from out of state. There are people flocking to California from. Uh, from those cold states of Massachusetts and New York uh, in order to take advantage of your weather or your generous social services that they can get so much more here? Or, you know, are they, are they native born? Are they young, old? Are they youth? Are they working? Uh, who are the homeless in the state? Well, I mean, I can go. Elaine, you want to go first? Go ahead, Adrian. Okay, so, so there's a, a tremendous amount of myth I'm, I can never be, uh, uh, it's tough to be shocked anymore, but every now and then you read, you know, a story of interviews with people and, uh, and they're willing to bend over backwards to convince themselves that the homeless people that are in their community are someone else's problem. They're not from here, they're from someplace else. They're from the neighboring community, the neighboring county, the neighboring state, they're bust here. And it's part of our need, I think, to, um, recuse ourselves from guilt or absolve ourselves of guilt for seeing the condition of our, our fellow humans on the street um, and try to put it on someone else and avoid accepting responsibility. So um, all of the data suggests that California's homeless population are overwhelmingly Californians. You may have a couple from out of state, but it's not statistically significant. The more interesting question, I think, is about intra-regional mobility of our homeless population that is uh, in California. And this is a particular concern in the Bay Area because the Bay Area is divided up into more county and city level jurisdictions than most metro regions in the United States. So it's Oakland, uh, San Francisco County is not a big place. Geographically, you don't have to go far to move into the next county just you know, right over the bridge or just south. And so what we've found is a lot of, in our interviews with care providers that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Oh, we've lost your sound. Lost your sound. You're muted. Back on, I hope. Nope. Oh, okay, Elaine, I'm gonna ask you if you have anything to add to that. Um, actually, uh, I don't have a lot to add, but as I indicated in the, in the audit we did back in 2018, I, I agree with Adrian, most of the, the homeless individuals in California are people who have, you know, are natives of California. There may be some, you know, folks that come from other states, but primarily it's, it's people in the state of California. I mean, the one thing that we did identify in the audit that we did in 2018, as I mentioned, was uh, a lot of uh, unaccompanied youth, youth who age out of foster care, um, end up homeless out on the streets. So there's, there's a pretty significant population in California of individuals under the age of 25 who are in the homeless community, but they are native Californians. It, it's not individuals uh, moving to California from Massachusetts or some of the colder states. Uh, I agree with Adrian, uh, pretty much the population is, is Californians. 
um, not just Californians or not just Americans, one of the questions that comes in, I've got several of them, and I hear repeatedly is the fact that a lot of uh, the problems has to deal with undocumented uh, workers or uh, you know undocumented aliens. Is, is that a part of the problem? I've also seen numbers to say it's a, it's a very tiny fraction of the homeless population in California, but we but we should know know whether or not it is part of the problem. Yeah, and I don't okay. know if Adrian Adrian is is able to to share information. I don't have a lot of information about the demographics of homeless in California. So I would, I really can't answer that question as to whether or not there's a large number of undocumented uh, individuals in the homeless communities in California. I'm, I'm back from my technical difficulty. These AirPods don't last long enough. Okay. I'm not sure where we left off though. But Adrian, I was asking about uh, whether or not undocumented aliens are a particular undocumented uh, workers are a particular problem with the homelessness population. A lot of people seem to come, you know, when I start talking about homelessness, they say, oh, well, that's because of all this immigration problem. What, what's the truth on that? Yeah, you know, the truth is, is that we don't know. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people have such solid opinions on this topic without any data. Um, you know, there may be a significant number of uh, undocumented immigrants comprising the, the California's homeless population, but the truth is, is that we just don't know. Um, it doesn't show up in the pit counts. Um, there may be data sets that, that show it, but uh, none that I'm aware of. The thing that stands out most, and the, the point where I was closing on before I got cut off was, the interregional mobility, we don't really understand how homeless populations move within California. They appear to not travel far from the city that they uh, came, uh, originally became homeless in, about in the Bay Area counties, about 80% of homeless people in those counties became homeless in those counties that they're currently homeless in. So these are locals overwhelmingly, and then the balance appear to be people from neighboring counties who kind of move around a bit. So. These are local, uh, local people overwhelmingly um, that we know from the data. Um, the other striking thing is that, you know, minorities are dramatically overrepresented in our homeless populations. Um, an African-American in the Bay Area has about a six times greater chance of becoming homeless than a white Bay Area resident. And so I think when you think about homelessness as being kind of the, the bottom last stage of multiple systemic failures in housing and in health and in education. And the byproduct is homelessness. It's not too surprising, um, but it is tragic. And so that's something we should work on too. And one last question along these lines. Uh, again, it's this question of the mentally ill and, and substance abuse. Is, is, do people become, is, the homeless because they're mentally ill and substance abusers or do they become substance abusers and mentally ill after they're on the street? Do they become homeless because of housing costs or is it that they simply are not able to, they have problems that push them into the street beyond being able to afford housing? Which, where does these things mesh up? I think it's a great question. We tried to get as close as we could to an answer in the, the research we're doing now. And we looked at the Bay Area counties. And I think there are a couple numbers that stood out. One was that about half, it was almost exactly half, 51% of Bay Area homeless residents 
do not have a condition that would make it difficult for them to obtain and keep housing if they could afford it. So that's about half. These are people who are the working poor. They're living in their cars and they're going to work um, and they're coming back. So half, that's a massive, massive chunk. And then you've got the other half of the population and they're divided into um, uh, multiple conditions that would prevent them from keeping and retaining housing. Some of them are physical. Some of them have PTSD. Some of them have physical disabilities that make employment difficult. Some of them have absolutely chronic substance abuse problems or severe mental health issues. I think the state estimate is about 20, uh, about a third of California homeless people have either a substance abuse problem or a severe mental health issue. So I, you know, I think the short answer to your question is I think um, it's a cycle that can feed both ways. You can develop a substance abuse problem, your life can, you know, the wheels can fall off your life and end up on the street and then find yourself in a really unhealthy lifestyle that makes it difficult to get out of. Um, that happens, but also a lot of what happens is that California is a more expensive place to live than almost any place else in the United States. And if you are a low wage worker, the margin is really, really thin, separating you from having a house and not having a house and a lot more thin than virtually every other state in the country. All right, Elaine, over to you with a question on, is this an audit ever done or a study ever done on the effectiveness of Prop 63? Uh, and uh, what's the outcome of that? What information do we have on that? We've absolutely done audit work on, on Prop 63, which is Mental Health Services Act. Uh, we've conducted a couple of audits. Um, the first one we did a few years ago, uh, and we found that certainly it generated a lot of money for the state of California. That money got out to the counties, but one of the problems that we have, and we've continued to see this as a problem, is making sure that we have the appropriate metrics to determine whether or not we're achieving the outcomes that we hope to achieve uh, in providing services to individuals who are mentally ill. And that is one of the things that we looked at in this most recent audit that I talked about, the Lanham and Petra Short Act, which are for those individuals who are seriously mentally ill. One of the things that we found in looking at Mental Health Services Act and looking at the Lanham and Petra Short Act, as far as the use of mental health funds in California is, there really isn't a central agency that collects all of the information and, and is able to tie dollars invested in certain types of programs to outcomes, including homelessness, uh, criminal activity, um, those, those types of things. So we put together in our most recent audit, a framework that the state we believe the state of California should embrace that would tie all of the funds, the Mental Health Services Act funds, which is billions of dollars, and other funds that the state of California provides through a variety of programs, through a variety of different state agencies, including Housing Community Development Department, Department of Social Services, Department of Education for Homeless Youth, um, but it's all disparate and we're not doing a good job of tracking funding, tying that funding to programs and ultimately to outcomes. And we think that structure is really, really important. We think the Mental Health Services Oversight Commission is the perfect uh, authority to be able to put that structure together, that framework, and that's what we recommended uh, be done because they already are responsible for collecting some information from counties on the use of some of the monies that were generated under Prop 63. 
So we think they could put that type of structure together so that we, we can get information, start measuring how well we're investing these funds and find programs that are really successful and continue to invest in those programs. And also to get some of the money that is still sitting out there uh, out into the communities, allow those communities to use those funds to provide those important services to those. And I agree with Adrian, uh, you know, a small percentage, there is a percentage of homeless individuals who have serious mental illness, um, but it's not the entire. A lot of people think all of the homeless folks either have substance abuse issues or mental health issues. That is not the case, but there is a significant segment of our population that needs help and Prop 63, that's what it was all about. But the state needs to do a better job of tracking the money, tying it to programs and tying it to outcomes and then making informed decisions moving forward. That's great. Uh, Adrian, real quick question for you as we're running out of time. A lot of people are very interested in your slides. If they contact the Bay Area Council, can they get copies of them? They will shortly. We have um, a report that's coming out uh, in some time, and so it'll all be available there. We'll post it to our uh, website, bayareacouncil.org. Um, I also see, I suspect several people took some screen grabs of them and posted them on Twitter. <laughs> so it shouldn't be too tough to find. No problem. Thank you. Uh, okay, one last question. I need a short answer for it. Unfortunately, it's a complicated question. It's come in from a couple of places, different related areas. Uh, Kill Jewel on Twitter, among others, and then a, a couple of other options came in similar. Hygiene is obviously a huge problem in the homeless community. Uh, what can be done in terms of making toilets and showers and things like that available publicly? Obviously, they present problems uh, for the community, but also they're necessary. What is there any efforts ongoing to deal with that problem? Well, I go back to the cabin community that Mayor Schaff in Oakland has been leading uh, with several uh, corporate sponsors like Kaiser and Blue Shield have been partnering and, and others too. Um, but what they do is they take a whole community of uh, an encampment community and essentially relocate everyone in that community to a cabin community where you're in a, a, a tough shed. It's not a permanent home, but it's someplace to get stable, a more sturdy structure. And then it's, there's security, there's lights, and there's shared facilities, toilets, showers, and a couple meals. And so it's a way to manage the, the real risk to public health, and particularly to the individual health of the homeless, um, of life without sanitation services. You know, indoor plumbing is one of, if not the most um, impactful public health innovation of all time. So going without that has severe, severe consequences and Mayor Falconer discussed the hepatitis outbreak in, in San Diego. So there are recent consequences to that. So we gotta be doing more to moving people into areas where there are safe services being provided. And there are examples of how to do it in the state. I point to the cabin community example out of Oakland. Well, thank you very much. And I thank you and I thank you Ms. Howell for, uh, as well for being with us today. Uh, the mayor who had to leave, unfortunately, but uh, all three of you have done a terrific job, and I think you've given people a lot to think about. Uh, we're going to take a break right now, a 15-minute break, and we will be back at uh, 12.30 uh, Pacific time, uh, 3.30 on the East Coast, and we'll see you then. Right now, we're going into break. Bye now. <laughs>